Jeremiah uh, looked this morning, and it was, uh, we moved into here almost two years ago to the day that we will leave this place. Uh, March 5th was our first Sunday here two years ago. Um, in some ways, it seems like 10 years ago. Um, in some ways, it feels like yesterday. Um, we, for one thing, just practically speaking, I want to make sure everybody knows where we're going. Um, if you go left out of this parking lot, about three quarters of a mile on your right-hand side, there's Rockdale Avenue is what the sign says. Google Maps will say Rockdale Road. You'll probably get there either way. It's 115 Rockdale Avenue, Rockdale Road uh, in Swannanoa. It's less than five minutes from here. It's closer to two minutes from here. So left out of here, right on Rockdale, and you won't be able to, to miss it. Um, there's going to be things happening this week to get us ready for that. Some of us are going to leave here today and, and take some stuff over there to load in kids' classes and, and some of our this stuff that's normally here will load it over there. Um, we'll be doing a kind of practice run on Saturday to try to make sure we know where stuff is and how things will flow and, and things like that. We're going to do our best that we can. Um, and then uh, we'll have a new home, yeah, um, which is just weird. Um, I've been a part of us moving four or five times. I can't remember. Too many times. Um, and it's still weird to me to think that next week our musicians will be able to put stuff down and just walk away, that we won't have to just load everything up. It's the first time we've ever been able to do that. Um, we are excited about that, obviously. Um, and there are some things that we need you to just be mindful of before we go in. Uh, one thing is these coffee cups. Um, unless they have a spill-proof lid on them, they can't go in the sanctuary. Because while you may have thoughts about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary, we don't want to slowly change it one spill at a time. You understand what I'm saying? So I don't, like, this doesn't count. Um, I'm out. Like, I have to get a different, different option. It has to be actually a spill-proof coffee cup. Um, apparently, I, I searched on Google today. There's uh, a lot of them out there, and for relatively affordably, and if you really need coffee in church, that's your option. Otherwise, we will still provide coffee over in the fellowship hall. Um, hear me out. You may have to come to church early. I know that's very difficult for us as a people to imagine that you're allowed to be there at church before 1037. But you can be there even at 10 o'clock if you wanted to be. If you don't, can't afford a coffee mug, don't want to get one, you need coffee, that's your window. We'll still have it for you. Suck down all your caffeine that you need and then come into the sanctuary. Um, I would encourage you to try that out, the whole getting to church early thing. Um, you know, for, most, for many of us, including my own family, I could tell you that unicorns roam the halls and you could never prove me wrong because nobody is here early to actually prove me wrong. Uh, so just check it out. There may or may not be unicorns. Um, the other thing is, if you have kids, um, 
our kids, when church is over, are used to being able to, like, go nuts. And that's, I include my children in that, to be clear. And we need to be careful how they go nuts in a couple of ways. One, the sanctuary is probably not the best place to do that. Um, sprinting matches on pews could go poorly, and uh, we, that's just not a good place to do it. <clears throat> so if you could just kind of keep an eye on them and, and move them, herd them elsewhere outside the sanctuary to do that. Also just be aware there's a road relatively close to the church. We are going to look at better outdoor options for our kids. Right now, those don't exist. So <clears throat> just don't lose track of them. That's all I'm saying. Be mindful of where they are, and we'll all, we've never had to figure this out together before, but we've got to teach our kids not to play hurdles on the pews. That's all I'm saying. Um, this is a gift to us and a resource for us to steward, and this is not a finish line for us by any means just because we don't have to set up and tear down. God gives gifts to his people and trusts them to them so they be used for the purposes of kingdom work. And we want to be a, a faithful people in doing that, not just taking care of the room, but using that space for the purpose of inviting people to come see Jesus. That's what we're going to be about. And that, that is, we hope, only enhanced by having a building. It's not changed. Does that make sense? I really want us to be in prayer about that, that we don't see this as, ah, oh, we made it, now we can chill out. No, that's, that's not how we see this. This is a resource to be steward, and hopefully God will multiply his kingdom in the valley, because that's what we want to see. Our mission statement is not find a building where we don't have to set up every week. Our mission statement is that we want to see the kingdom of Jesus transform the Swannanoa Valley. That is what we want. And we're excited to see how that happens uh, in a new place. Um, we, are, we are in this morning, Ruth chapter 3. <clears throat> and we'll be here briefly this morning. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 18 verses. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with, <clears throat> with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down on the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the, to the man until he's finished eating and drinking." But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a man lay at his feet. A woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I'll do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before he could recognize, before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must, know God, must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the witness of these, our brother and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the life of Ruth, her story. We pray, God, that we would see in it your faithfulness and kindness and see forward the life that we should live in and towards you. Make our hearts soft and mold us into the image of Jesus. Amen. This is, a, this is a moment when Ruth's story starts to be resolved, and its central issue here is this thing, this role, an office of a redeemer. And in our culture, this is relatively foreign, um, but in this place and time, a, a woman, when she has lost uh, all of her sons, when she has lost her husband, there is no way functionally for her, her inheritance of her family and clan to be passed on. So she needs somebody, a male, who can receive the inheritance to serve uh, where those who have died or those whom she's never born uh, can do what, the, what she could not biologically or through marriage. And that is called redemption. That is a redeemer. It comes from somebody who's in the clan, a kinsman, who comes and serves and jumps in and short circuits what tragedy has taken away. Boaz is in line to be a redeemer. He can come in as a representative of the clan, of the tribe, and he can uh, marry into and, and continue the inheritance that was lost when Naomi lost her husband and when Naomi lost her sons. And it has to be clear here that Boaz's obligation and opportunity legally is, is here for Naomi, not to Ruth. Ruth is married into this family. Naomi is the one who in some sense deserves redemption or is available for redemption. Now Ruth, of course, is part of the story, but it's important to see that it's actually Boaz's obligation is to Naomi and not Ruth. And Ruth is told by Naomi, though, to act as if she might be the one to whom Boaz has obligation. And so it seems like this is a harvest time, and ordinarily people go outside the city to work the fields and inside the city to sleep because cities are, are walled. And, and to be clear, at this point, Bethlehem is not probably much of a city at all. It's very small. But you go inside to sleep and outside to work 
But when it's harvest time and the, the grain is being threshed and you're receiving the, the fruits of your labor, it seems that people slept by the things that they just harvested so valuable. You don't want the thieves to come in and just sort of scoop up your year's worth of labor, your season's worth of labor. So Naomi knows that Boaz will be there. And she tells Ruth to go and wait until he has eaten and drunk and he's fulfilled and he's tired and he lays down to sleep. And go in then, <clears throat> she's clean and, and ready to smell good and, and be a good representative of the family and do this thing where she uncovers his feet. And there is some sort of potential for scandal here. And in fact, the, the, the language, sometimes the words that are used here can be used euphemistically. So like feet aren't necessarily feet, if you understand what I'm saying. And so there's some question here, is, is Naomi telling Ruth to do something sort of untoward or, or seductive? And some people read this text and, and see that. I think that there's enough uh, dual meaning in the language in the context of the story that we don't have to and, and probably shouldn't read Ruth as being seductive. She's not putting on special clothes. She's wearing the clothes that she would normally wear in, in broad daylight, not at night, and she's just sort of taking a bath. She's not doing anything seductive, and it seems the way that Boaz reacts to what she does, it's literally that he just got cold because he woke up at midnight and it says he startled asleep or shivered asleep. And why? Because, well, his feet are uncovered and it's gotten cold at, at night. And Ruth is there and this foreign girl to whom he has no obligation suddenly starts speaking to him very directly and says, you spread your cloak over me. You're a redeemer. Basically, do your job. It's quite a bold move. And in fact, this whole scheme is, is bold. It's, it is, as, as one commentator, Daniel Block, says, this is a gamble, a calculated gamble by Naomi. Because it's, it's probable that at this time of the season that it is normal that a prostitute would come down to where the men are sleeping by the grain outside the city walls in the darkness and offer themselves, sell themselves. So there's, there's two ways this, is, this could go wrong. One, Boaz wakes up out of his fatigue Possibly, they don't know whether he's drunk too much, and says, oh, a prostitute, great, and takes advantage of her. That would go poorly. Another way this could go poorly is that Boaz is an honorable man, wakes up and says, I don't have anything to do with prostitution. Get out of here, and shuns her, and dishonors her. So out of the three possible scenarios, two of them are bad, and they they take this gamble that this is the thing that they should do. And sure enough, when Ruth does this thing, Boaz does what is honorable, does not take advantage of her, <clears throat> and does not cast her out, but says that he will take up this role of redeemer. Slight problem is that he's not next in line to do it. There's one person ahead of him in the, the redeemer queue, as it were. But he basically says, you know, just... Let's just lay down, we'll sleep, and we'll make sure that this gets taken care of. And he cares about how she's perceived. He knows how this looks, how this might be scandalous. So before the sun rises fully, he sends her out and sends her with, with grain. It seems like maybe a head covering or scarf was used to kind of make a big bag full of this grain that's more than she's labored for thus far. He's generous with her. And Naomi sees it and reassures her. Before the end of the day, this guy's going to take care of it. 
Let's not be worried here. But this is a gamble that Naomi has acted on. That she has engaged in, in hopes, perhaps in trust, though Boaz, a good man in her family, in her married family, would act honorably towards them. And in life with God in the kingdom, very often is this sort of calculated wager. Because we, we would like things to be settled and sure that life with God would be a sort of guarantee. And we, we often treat God that way. That if I do this, then God owes me this. And so we try to discern the sort of magic steps and actions where we can procure from God what we want. So there is a way that you can live your life before God, always trying to figure out how to put God in your debt. <clears throat> and that is, from the position of Scripture, a foolhardy proposition, because God owes you nothing. He's the maker of everything. And He is always the one in the right. You, you cannot put Him in your debt. That's foolhardy. The other thing that people try to do, I see this often, is how do I make sure to do the exact right thing so then I'll be in the quote-unquote will of God and then I know that I'll be all right. And usually, it's often I have these conversations with college students or people just out of college and they get um, into the point of paralysis because they're like, I'm not sure what is the thing that I am supposed to do. I don't know how to discern the exact perfect will of God. I haven't heard the voice. I don't feel something enough. And, and neither one of those things are the life of faith. Sometimes, indeed, God does like supernaturally tell you, this is what you should do. And you discern that through some sense or experience and the verification of Scripture and community. And that's wonderful, but by and large, the people of God don't even act like that in Scripture. They generally are not sitting around waiting for the light to appear for them to follow to the next place. If you, and if you look at the way that the church acts in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, the way that they make their decisions is that they're just going for it. They're just like, we got to tell people about Jesus. We got to do this thing. Let's go. Now, sometimes God steps in. Like in the case of Paul, he's going in one direction and, and an angel literally steps in and is like, don't go this way, go that way. But that's recorded as a strange scenario. Otherwise, Paul's assumption in his travels is, I want to preach the gospel. God wants me to preach the gospel. I'm going to go anywhere I can to preach the gospel. Let's go. Now, you may not be Paul. And you may feel like there are more things that you are called to on your list. But I think it is, it is more uh, appropriate and more in keeping with the life of faith that we see in Scripture, that you would rightly understand the way that God is, the way His character is, the way that He's made you, and you are invited to make the calculated gamble of faith. You are invited to step into what is not certain, not trusting that everything will be all right, not trusting that you're supremely confident, but trusting that God is supremely faithful, and that following Him beckons you to a life of faith in which you cannot ultimately lose. Jesus will tell two stories that, that illustrate this, where He says, 
There's a man, and he finds a hidden treasure in a field, and he sells everything he has to buy the field. And then he says, there's another, another man. This kingdom is like a, a merchant who's looking for, for valuable jewels, and he finds a pearl that's exceedingly valuable. He sells everything he has to buy the pearl. And in both of those little stories, the, the, ins, the, the message being communicated is not that these people and the stories are foolish, but that they're wise. They have rightly discerned the value of things and, and surrendered everything they have to obtain it. The life of faith, the life with God, feels oftentimes risky and like a, like a gamble. It feels on its face like, wow, this could go wrong in about, I don't know, a hundred different ways. But when you have rightly discerned the character of God and the way he's made you and what he's called you to do in the world, you should feel free and safe to go for it. This is the life of faith with God, is that God makes people in the world to rightfully bear his image as a generous and free creator who will ultimately oversee the goodness of his creation and you, and he will take care of you as you operate as a sub-gardener, as you tend the world with him. What happens if you fail? What happens? You failed. And guess what? Everything is okay. Now, things may be hard. Things may be difficult when you fail. And things in the middle of, of, of those moments of failure can be, seem like suffering and are suffering. But you've not knocked God off his perch and he has not disowned you. And in those two truths, you have your confidence that even in the midst of failure, God still delights in you and will take care of you because you're his. And oftentimes, it is on the other side of those times of perceived failure that you recognize, aha, even here God was doing something that I did not see. And you learn to trust him. The life of faith beckons us to be a bit more like Naomi let us go for this and see what might happen. Let us see what God might do. Because on the other end of this confidence, this life of faith, this seemingly but not quite risky life of faith, is the character of the person in whom you are ultimately trusting. You are not necessarily the trustworthy person in this decision-making gamble. It's that you're ultimately confident that God is himself, faithful, competent, good, all-wise, and all-powerful. Ultimately, we can see that Ruth's gamble is not, is not a gamble because Boaz is a good man. Because Boaz is a good man, he is able to be on the other side of this gamble. And he is able to act faithfully and secure it so that Ruth's actions are not risky. They're, in fact, wise. When you, in the life of faith, throw yourself in trust at Jesus, you will find him to be secure and good for you. Boaz has previously, in chapter 2, told Ruth that it's delightful that Ruth has come under the wing of Israel's God. And she uses that language here 
and tells Boaz to stretch his wings over her. And Boaz, when he does that, he's being invited to stretch his cloak over her as a symbol of marriage. That they would enfold, he would enfold her in this covenant of marriage. And as good and as kind and as faithful as Boaz is, his, his ability to do this thing at this point in the story is up for debate, but you and I are meant to read this story and realize that Jesus' capacity, his ability to follow through on this petition is not at all in doubt. We come to God as people who recognize the state of our own clothing. The prophets will say very clearly, as Isaiah does in chapter 1, that your, your sins are as scarlet. And God is in that, that passage in Isaiah 1 saying, let, us make, let me make you white as snow. In Zechariah 3, there, Zechariah has a vision of the, of the priest of Israel and he stands before God and his garments are full of iniquity. And God stands and says, let us clothe him in white. Let us cleanse him. The, the picture of the church that we ultimately see in Revelation 3 is that the bride of Christ is clothed in white. The righteousness of God clothed over us. God will covenantally enfold you and pledge Himself to you forever. So you should feel profoundly safe with Him even in the when the world feels risky and unsafe. Your safety should not be gauged upon the confidence in yourself and your own goodness and your own standing in that moment, but it should instead, your confidence should be built on the qualities of the covenant-keeping bridegroom of the, of the church of God. We are tempted as Christians to live our life in these seas of up and down experiential. Am I doing well or am I doing poorly? Everything is gauged upon how am I doing? But the first question of the Christian life is not how are you doing, but what has God done and what is God doing? Because that is constant. He in that way is entirely predictable and faithful. He pledges Himself to His people and says to you, you may be people who fail and succeed and are hit or miss, but I will always be faithful to you. Let me stretch my wing over you. Let me stretch my garment over you. This morning, Ruth's story invites us to once again see Jesus as the covenant-keeping, faithful bridegroom of the church of Christ. And you may be in here in a, in a state of absolute failure where you have, you have not trusted upon, leaned into, gambled upon the goodness and character of God, but have instead leaned hard on your own character and you know that you have fallen short once more. Well, this morning, Ruth's story is telling you that God will be faithful to you even in the midst of your inability to live up to the standard. And some of you are striving so hard to just be in that good place this week. If I could just be in that place where God would be happy with me, if God would be uh, <clears throat> give me what I need, if I can just prove God that I'm enough, and you are laboring under a burden that you cannot carry, that you were never meant to carry, and you are drinking from a well that is shallow and dirty, contaminated, 
God presents himself to you as the one who lifts that burden off of you and says, I will clothe you in my righteousness. There is an opportunity here for all of us to repent. To this morning, see Boaz, see Ruth, and say, I have to leave aside this other way that I've been doing my life. Leave aside trying to, to, to demand of God what you feel you deserve based on your conduct. Leave aside this life of roller coaster spirituality that hinges upon yourself. Leave aside a confidence that is hung on anything except this immovable Redeemer. For the Lord is our Redeemer. And He will surely be faithful to His people until the very end. You who He has gathered underneath the wings of those bridegroom garments who He has pledged Himself to forever and ever without fail. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You that with You there is no risk. That a life that, that seems at times to be on the edge with a life that seems to be um, a launch into the unknown at times, there is no true risk. There is no fear of failure because you do not fail. And even in times where we, what we perceive as failure, what we think is the wrong road, or we've ended up in a bad place, you are yet still moving sovereignly in charge. And when we seek to follow you to do your will, how you made us to do your will, we are in good pastures. We are in safe place with you. We confess that we are afraid where you might lead us to. But Father, I pray that you would help us to see your character more clearly so that we don't have to be afraid, so we don't have to perceive this as a risky proposition. And we thank you, God, that it is on the strength of your own covenant-keeping faithfulness that we can appear before you that we don't have to worry and wonder what your response to us might be, for it is secured to us forever. The immovableness of your covenant love is a rock upon which we can build our house. I pray that any place where we have built our house on some other thing, some other need to provoke reaction out of you, some other need to prove ourselves, I pray that you'd wash away those alternative faulty foundations so that everything we have can be built upon the rock of your faithfulness. And God, for all of those who are here deep in their failure, deep in sin, the ways that they have defied You and done so flagrantly or secretly, I pray, God, that they will see that You are the covenant-keeping God who has offered to stretch Your own righteousness over them, Your own clean garments over theirs, so they can have trust that Your attitude towards them is one of bringing them home. Let no one feel this morning that they are too far off, but instead that they would see the faithful, tender kindness of God has come after them. 
We thank you so much for your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. We have seen it in countless ways. We pray that our eyes might be open, that we would see yet more. Make us, O Lord, to love you with all of our hearts and form us into the image of your Son. Amen.